You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, we bring you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Phil Pressel, who was the project engineer in charge of creating the camera system for the KH-9 Hexagon Reconnaissance Satellite. The KH-9 itself was just declassified by the NRO and the CIA in the fall of 2011. And this has allowed Phil to publish this book, Meeting the Challenge, the KH-9 Hexagon Reconnaissance Satellite. Phil will join us today to talk about his life, talk about his book, and talk about working to build this extraordinarily complex satellite. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, guys, to be here. Now, I'd like to start talking a little bit about your background, your, your personal biography. Uh, you grew up in Europe. Uh, you're a yes. Holocaust survivor. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what brought you to the United States? Sure. I was born in Belgium, in Antwerp, Belgium, and um, I was an only child. When the war broke out and the Germans invaded Belgium in May of 1940, my parents kind of knew what was going to happen. So they had a suitcase ready to move out. They, they took me, and, and we crossed the border from Belgium into France. From then on, we were on the run and hiding for five years, escaping the Nazis. And we lived uh, in various places in the southern city of Marseille, in the central France in Lyon, where I was sheltered for a long time by a Catholic family. Then we wound up in Paris, where I saw the famous parade with Charles de Gaulle leading the parade. I was right on the curb with my father. And after the war, my father uh, was able to, he spoke eight languages. And so he was hired in 1946 by the United Nations to be a translator. And, uh, and so we came to New York, and the rest is history. I went to school, learned English and graduated schools and uh, became a, a mechanical engineer. Yeah, you got your mechanical engineer degree from NYU. Right. And, and you wrote a book about your family uh, during yeah, this Yeah, I period. did write a book after I retired. I had decided to write for my children and grandchildren the, about their heritage and how I, I and we survived the war. And um, okay. like that. And you eventually would find work with an, a firm, Perkin Elmer, uh, which in Connecticut. In Connecticut, Dansbury, Connecticut, if Dan I'm not Dansbury, mistaken. Connecticut, Dansbury, right. Connecticut. I was there for 30 years. And I found it interesting. I hadn't heard of the company before I read your book. Uh, and I'll, probably a lot of our listeners hadn't heard of the company. 
but it has some pretty high-profile success stories, other than the Hexagon, of course. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things Perk and Elmer had worked on? Well, we worked on a lot of electro-optical uh, instruments. Uh, some of them were for the CIA, and some of them were for NASA. And the one that most people have heard of is the Hubble Space Telescope, right. which we designed, built in Danbury, Connecticut, and of course it was launched. And we were very, very proud of, of it, even though there was one problem which right. everybody knows about, uh, which was eventually corrected uh, by actually a good friend of mine. He, he designed the optics to make the corrections. Um, but uh, in my 30 years there, I did work a little bit on the Hubble fine guidance system. But most of my work was, about 90% of it was classified for the CIA. And I worked most for most of uh, the duration of Hexagon. And I worked on several other CIA-related projects, which I still can't, can't talk, talk about. about. The company also uh, designed the camera system for the U-2 spy plane, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, that, that was classified, but yes, that's, well, that's correct. If I found it, it's not as classified. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. It was very interesting work. Okay. So the Hexagon system itself, it's, it's, it's a fascinating satellite, and, it, and it's, it's nice that they finally allow us to learn about it by declassifying the program. Uh, it has a unique... Um, place in American history as the last satellite to do what? To use film. To use actual today, film like in a camera. Actually, and you talk to youth today, they don't know what film yeah. is. Right. And uh, today, of course, they're all digital. Most of them are real time, but uh, ours was, was, was film. Um, and, uh, yeah. So the earliest satellites the United States built, uh, people may have heard of, the Corona, right. um, the Gambit satellite. Right. They did a lot of things well. Why the hexagon? Why did they decide that we needed a new system? Okay, well, in 1965, uh, John McCone, who was the then director of the CIA, decided that they wanted a much better satellite than Corona, whose best resolution was like six feet or worse. And they could only carry 20 to 80 pounds of film. They, he wanted a satellite that could take, uh, map the whole landmass of the entire Earth in stereo with a resolution of between two to three feet or better. I can't tell you how much better, but it turned out right. a great success and we, we did meet the, their requirements. Um, and so in 1965, he asked, he came to Perkin Elmer and he asked us to do a study for approximately a year uh, on how we would develop such a camera. And we did. And we went to the CIA and one night in a safe house, we presented our study, the results. They liked it very much. They told us, go back, just complete the study and then write us a proposal. It took us six weeks to write a very detailed proposal, technically, cost-wise, and schedule-wise. We presented that, we sent that to the CIA in May or June of 1966. A couple of months later, the CIA said, we're coming up to do some 
fact-finding and ask you questions about your proposal. And they did. They brought with them some of their consultants. One of them was the TRW Corporation, and the other one was the Aerospace Corporation, located in California. And they brought with them the, the President's uh, Scientific Advisory Board, whose chairman was Edwin Land. Right. You may have heard of him. He was the developer of the Polaroid Land yep. camera. I sat right next to him. He was a very sharp guy. He loved gadgets. And after our presentation, the key to Hexagon was the development of, of one invention called the twister and the air bars, and another one was the looper. The, and so we brought him down to the laboratory and showed him them in action, and he was blown away. And I think probably his influence and several others on the committee um, uh, allowed us or gave them the influence that we got the job. And, yeah. and uh, when we got the job, in, nine, in October 10th, 1966, there were only 15 to 20 of us working on the program at the time. And of course, it grew to over 1,000 people. Wow. The, the vice president and the director of the program gathered us in, a, in our engineering room, and they went to the front of the room, and the general manager pulled out his cigar, and I said, and he said, we won. So we all clapped. Then we all went back to our phones. We didn't have offices at the time. We just worked in a large area. Some of us called our wives not to tell them about the program because it was top secret, mm. just to say, we just got a job that's worth years of work. So I, I, we will be employed securely. Others of us, including myself, we called our stockbrokers. <laughs> and of course, this was not legal because it was inside information. I didn't have much money. So I bought a few shares. The next day, the secretary came around, and she had, they had found out. They came to everyone, did you buy any shares, and how many? We told them. We figured we were going to be reprimanded and lose the shares, but nothing ever happened because I'm sure the amount of money right. involved was small, so we got to keep it. I think and, there's and, a statute of limitations on insider trading, so I think you're yeah, safe talking about okay, it today. But, but the next task was to hire people for the program. And the problem was that we, we all, engineers, we didn't want to interview because we wanted to d get down to details, but we all had to interview people. I interviewed one man, and his name was Charlie Karatsis, and I came up with some clever questions. Well, he knew the answer. He knew a lot more than I did. He, was, he became my boss, <laughs> the director of engineering, and eventually we built up a big staff. The problem was it took between four months and a year to get the security clearance. Mm. So what did we do with all of these people? We put them in a large room. Which you called the, the mushroom the, patch. The mushroom patch. Why did we call right. it the mushroom patch? Is because we kept them all in the dark and fed them a lot of crap. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. you've alluded to some of the technical issues that seem to be especially daunting when building the hexagon system. And, I, and I, as I read the book, I thought back to having camera when I was younger and having to manually focus the camera. And how, Today, it's so much more difficult than a cell phone camera or digital cameras. Never really thought about the fact that you put this camera in space and had to keep it in focus as it's traveling 17,000 miles an hour and going through all the different vibrations and G loads uh, and changes in temperature. 
Can you talk a little bit about the technical issues that you had to overcome to sure. build the hexagon? Yeah. Um, when you let's assume my fist is the Earth, okay, and the Earth is rotating from west to east. The launches from Florida go in an equatorial path, and since the Earth is a little tilted, it makes a, a sine wave around the equator. To cover the whole Earth like we were required to, we had to launch it in a polar orbit. So here's the Earth rotating. From Vandenberg, we launched it, and, and, and the satellite went around, and of course it covered the entire Earth. The elliptical orbit, and most orbits are elliptical, the closest point to the Earth is called the perigee, and it was approximately 90 miles. The furthest point away perhaps was 150 miles. And of course, the best resolution would be closer to the Earth. Right. There's a mathematical term that's used to control the whole camera, and that's called V, like Victor, over H. Velocity of the vehicle, wherever it was, divided by the height above the Earth. That controlled all of the servo mechanism, the controls of the camera. Now just imagine you have a rotating Earth, a rotating a, a satel a, a satellite speeding at high speed. The cameras, which I'll explain later a little bit, are rotating. There are two cameras to get stereo. They're rotating in this direction only during photography when we didn't take pictures. And of course, we took pictures of Russia and China and like that. When they weren't rotating, uh, when they were photography, we rotated them. And the film, and the film traveled at high speed. The highest speed of the film was at perigee, when it was closest mm -hmm. to the Earth. And that speed was incredible. It was 200 inches per second, <laughs> which means it went, if you had a large room, from one wall to another in one second. Mm -hmm. Incredible. It went whoosh, like that. And it had to rotate at the focal plane because the cameras were, were, were rotating at approximately 30 revolutions per minute. And the film had to go by linearly by the focal plane and in rotation. And the key invention to all this was called the twister. And um, it's a little difficult to explain. The details of it are in the book. And there was one other invention that was called the looper. It was a big box with many rollers. And we had hundreds of rollers in the system to pass the film over. And it had a carriage that moved back and forth. Moving this way, it drew film from the supply container to the, and it supplied film to the focal plane. And then it exited to the, to the re-entry vehicle. You tested this as you were building the camera, yeah. uh, and you write a, talk about in the book a story where it didn't necessarily work during your testing until one particular day where it picked a really good day to work uh, when the CIA visited you oh. to see uh, how <laughs> yeah. your progress was yeah. going. That, that's true. It, it, it worked that day, and the next day there was a problem. The day before there was a problem, but it worked that day. But no matter what, we made it work perfectly, constantly. And you're right about the testing. The camera itself and the assemblies that made up the whole uh, system were tested at Perkinomer in thermal vacuum chambers. So that means they were put into a vacuum environment and the temperature was varied hot and cold 
and we did optical tests to verify that it was in alignment. And all the optics were, were the mirrors were polished, the lenses were polished to very, very high precision, meaning the surfaces had to be flat or to a certain curvature to millions of inches. What I, what I found interesting, and, and I had to kind of take a step back from when I was reading the book, because it sounded as though uh, we had decades of experience doing this sort of thing when you were designing this, because I was very impressed in how efficiently and effectively you were able to design this. Uh, but that's not really the case at this point. We didn't have decades in space. You're really designing uh, this satellite in relatively the same time period as our initial entry into space. There's not a lot of history to build upon. That's true. That's absolutely true. And not only that, we did not have significant computer capability. We had early versions of a program called NASTRAN. We didn't have pocket calculators. We didn't have computers. We had typewriters or word processors. And most importantly for us engineers, we used the slide rule. We had no microprocessors, no LEDs, no CCDs. But we did develop that technology. And in some ways, we were responsible for the development of it. And we did invent brushless DC motors. These are motors that are commutated by an optical encoder with lights. And of course, we used light bulbs at the beginning. And we spent hundreds of dollars per light bulb to make sure we had properly working ones when eventually when LEDs, light-emitting diodes, came out that that helped a lot, but um, and the reason for brushless motors is so that it wouldn't create debris mm-hmm. to, that could go into bearings or on the optics. Because there's no one there to clean it out in space. It was unmanned, it? and yeah. it was an unmanned system. And it, uh, brush motors have electrical noise, and we could not tolerate that. So we came up with a lot of brand new techniques. Yeah, you're basically inventing new ways yeah, of we, doing photography. Yeah, we did. And the team, uh, we had, uh, we eventually worked with about over a thousand people. And the team was incredible. Uh, there were project engineers, very, very talented people who were in charge of the film uh, supply reels, the film uh, path, the, the take-up reels, you know, I was uh, responsible for the mechanical design of the cameras, uh, and others designed very complicated things at the focal plane, like this, this this twister. It was a whole team effort from engineering to testing to con- quality control people to salespeople. And, and uh, the one thing that we did not have at the time, and I'm embarrassed or ashamed to say that, we had no women engineers. Mm-hmm. You know, women didn't have those opportunities. The only thing women were went for in those days were nursing, secretaries, um, and teachers. Today, I'm glad to say that we have women engineers, you know, working the, all of these skills. Mm-hmm. And and uh, anyway. well, the time you were actually developing this in the, the late 1960s was when that first wave of women started going to engineering school, and so they. You know, 10, 15 years after this, you would have had a lot more women. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. One thing that's interesting about the hexagon, as we've talked about, is that it uses actual film. Um, How do we go about getting that film back from the satellite out of space? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. Let me first explain. The film was 
uh, six, 6 6.6 inches wide, and it went over rollers slightly longer than that. The rollers were about the diameter of my finger. And it was about two thousandths of an inch thick. And at the beginning of the program, each of the two cameras carried 20 miles of film. The film was supplied by the Kodak Corporation. As they made improvements in film technology, uh, they developed color film that we could use. So we had miles of black and white and, and color film throughout. They were also able to make the fin film thinner to one and a half thousandths of an inch approximately. So at the, near the, the final missions, which could last the beginning, we had missions about 52 days, and then eventually we wound up with high reliability. We had missions that were 285 days. Yeah. Uh, the film got thinner, so the last missions had as much as 30 miles of film for each camera. They were stored on huge six-foot diameter. The, the, the reels were six feet in diameter, held in a pressurized container. The film traveled through a pressurized film pad, and we needed low-pressure dry nitrogen so that the f in space the film would have lost humidity mm -hmm. and that would have curled the film and given us lots of problems. How do you synchronize the film with the camera yeah. itself? That's a very good question. I have to give a huge amount of credit to the electrical engineers and especially the experts in servo mechanisms who, who made this possible. Um, as I said before, the cameras are rotating opposite each other. The reason for that, by the way, is to compensate for momentum. If they rotated the same way, the vehicle would want to wobble. So every large assembly, like the supply reels and the take-up reels and the optical bars, had significant mass, so they all rotated opposite each other for momentum compensation. So during photography, the twister which was able to pass the film at high speed, linearly and in rotation, um, was synchronized. So let's talk about a scan of 120 degrees. If you look straight down, you're looking at Nader. Well, we were able to scan small areas and large areas from plus 60 degrees to minus 60 degrees. So we could cover a ground at perigee of about 370 miles mm this way and 10 miles wide. So if the camera is rotating, the twister uh, uh, allowed the film to meet the rotating camera and they rotated together and the air bar of the twister would rotate. It had a film, it, would, uh, it had holes in this bar. It didn't rotate, it was stationary, but it had an air film that came out of it so that the film itself rode over a thin layer of air. Okay, so we're taking photography from plus to minus 60 degrees. At the end of that, the camera kept going around. The film was stopped at this position for a fraction of a second, reversed to go into the exit side of what I talked about earlier, the looper, and all that details in the book. Mm -hmm. And this recycled, and they met again. Photography, the camera kept going, recycle, and photography. And during the recycle, uh, the camera just kept going. 
the, during recycle, the film was stopped, reversed to go back to get stored, basically, in the take-up units, and to reposition the film at this position. The servo mechanisms, guys, were able to synchronize the speed of the film in rotation and linearly to the image that was generated by the optical bar almost perfectly. Yeah, all this had to be completely automated and work perfectly. No one could yeah. be there to fix it. Right, it was all programmed yeah. into, the, into the controls of the mission. And as long as they knew the, the position, the high, height and the velocity, that controlled all the equations, algorithms or whatever for the camera. And it was done just about perfectly because we got fantastic pictures. So the precision of the, the mirrors and the lenses were what allowed you to get the kind of pictures that you were able to that were much uh, better than the Corona, better than the Gambit beforehand. Right. Yeah, the, the pictures were um, what was released when this program was declassified was uh, that we were able to get a resolution of two to three feet on the ground from about 100 miles away. I can't tell you uh, that it's any better because it's still classified, but I, uh, you can speculate that it could be much, much better under the right conditions. Um, then we did take photographs, very meaningful photographs, not only of Russia, our Cold War enemies, and they would include China. We took pictures of, of Cuba. We took pictures in the Middle East. And by the way, if there was a crisis during the, the program existed from, the first flight was in 1971 for about 15 years. If there was a crisis in the world, we didn't have to wait till the film was full, filled up one reentry vehicle. We could, they could bring it down much sooner to get whatever data was necessary. Um, and, and, and so the, the results, the intelligence that we gathered enabled President Nixon to sign the SALT Treaty, which was a Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. And it allowed, in the 1980s, when President Reagan said, trust but verify, we were the cameras that verified what everybody else was doing. So, and not only that, our photographs also took did economic intelligence. So, for example, they, we were able to take pictures of, of, of the ground, the agricultural, the farms, to see how their crops were doing, whether they had floodplains and that kind of thing. And those pictures uh, would enable uh, the United States to determine economically what problems Russia was going through. And that had a lot to do with strategy. Um, so now, the, the reentry vehicles, when they were full, were released from the orbiting vehicle. They went through the atmosphere. And then, at a certain altitude, a parachute deployed. And it and was then caught by a C-130, as the picture right. shows. And then the, 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 the film was brought to Hawaii. The film package itself was shipped back to the CIA for analysis. One failure that we did have, it wasn't a camera failure or a system failure, it was the parachute didn't deploy. And so the 
airplane could not catch it. The vehicle hit the water very, very hard, had huge G-forces. Mm -hmm. It then sank in 16,400 feet of, in the middle of the Pacific, and it was thought to be lost. Well, the CIA thought there was a possibility that these huge film reels, tightly wound, that perhaps in the middle of, of a strip or way inside, they might be some valuable pictures. So they wanted to retrieve it. And another reason for wanting to retrieve it was that there were always Russian trawlers in the area, and they certainly didn't want the Russians to go down and go after right. it. So the CIA asked us at Perkinummer to design this humongous claw to capture it, and they asked the Navy to go after it using the bathysphere, the Trieste vehicle, which was known to have the capability of going down to 30,000 feet. And, it, and we, so we designed, we built this device, and the, the manager, uh, engineer who designed it, went to Hawaii, and he boarded the ships. There were three support ships, and they went after the vehicle. And they, they did find it, but with bad weather and practice, um, it took months for them to finally grab it. Mm -hmm. They did retrieve it. They brought it up to the surface. The CIA did not want the sailors aboard the ships to know what was what they were going after. So they said, put a tar black tarpaulin over the whole thing before it comes up so they don't find mm -hmm. out. Well, it came up, but it, w it was quite broken up, and the film actually disintegrated, fell off in small pieces, and they never did get uh, any data from it. But they were still, the CIA was still happy that we went after it, right. and, and we tried. Um, well, your book says that uh, the force at which the capsule hit the water was 2,600 Gs. Yes, uh, that's a, that, yeah. somebody calculated that, yeah. and, it, and that was probably, I'm sure, the load that destroyed the whole thing. Right. Uh, uh, that's that one out of what you said, 72. We had we had uh, uh, 19 successful missions, so we had um, basically 76. Minus one. Right, 75 uh, successful out of 76. Uh, successful uh, launches. That's right. So I, I, we mentioned this in the introduction that this was just declassified. This was something that stayed secret until 2011. Stayed um, secret for 25 years. Can you talk a little bit about the security arrangements for the book before it was cleared? And then we'll talk about for the project itself. Yeah, um, I retired. And I had a plan when I retired to, to write about my Holocaust experiences for my kids and grandchildren, how we survived. I wanted to know their, where they, the heritage was. When I, and then when I finished that book, I decided, oh, I enjoyed the process of writing. So I contacted the CIA, told them what I wanted to do. They invited me down to talk, and they finally gave me written permission to write a book about Hexagon with the proviso that I, I cannot tell anybody anything until it was declassified, I can't get it published, and I, ha and I had to do it in a secret environment. And I did. And they eventually sent the CIA agent to my home in San Diego. And I, what I did to keep it secure was I had a dedicated laptop with an external hard drive. So it was never connected to the Internet. The external, and I wrote the whole book encrypted. 
And after every day after I was finished, I took the external hard drive, and I had a safe bolted to the floor of my bedroom closet. I put the hard drive in there, and anyway, they were very they were happy with with those arrangements. So I, so I, I it took me about nine years to write the book, and finally in 2011 it was declassified, and I was thrilled, so I could get the book published. So yeah. after the declassification, I quickly finished the book, found the publisher, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And, and that was it. But now you asked about security on the job. Right. I mean, that seems and that story seems very consistent with the kind of security procedures yeah, you had to go through. We had through. very, very high security. Um, we were in a building that had no windows, only in the cafeteria. We had guards at every door. Upon entry in the morning, you exchanged to a special badge. You exchanged it when we went home. We, uh, I personally, I had... I kept my documents, all of them were classified, in two safes. Each of them weighed a thousand pounds with a fancy combination. And um, our phones were special phones. We, we all talked in code. For example, the camera was called the optical bar, so it was the OB. The platen, which was the the focal plane area where all of the, the fancy uh, invention of the twister and the air bars were, that was called a PL for platen. The supply can was the SU, supply unit. The take-ups were the take-up. And then the looper was the LO, etc. And you never and, used the word film. And, and I was just going to say okay. that. Sorry. The one word that we could not use, it was not hexagon, it was film because film automatically indicated a camera right. and we couldn't indicate that and when we spoke on the phones with people on the west coast for example people at Lockheed it wasn't Lockheed Martin then; it was Lockheed and they were the ones to integrate the whole vehicle the cameras the film the electronics and the re-entry vehicles we spoke to people there and at other areas we we could only talk in those codes and of course, never use the word film. The word that we used for film was material. The material is passing by at mm -hmm. the proper speed. Um, and if we, if either party, talking on either end, said one of those words, the other person immediately hung up. Traveling, we uh, could not carry any identification such as we we had pencils with the word Perkinomer. We couldn't carry those. We When we got to our destination, so for example at Lockheed, we signed in as self. We didn't represent Perkinomer. We said we represented ourselves. We had to get special badges and, and the security department arranged for our entries. Um, when we stayed at hotels, there were Occasionally, that the agency told us you cannot stay at a particular hotel because we believe that the rooms are bugged, <laughs> and and so, um, and and to the best of my knowledge, nobody ever told their families what we did. And I've spoken to a lot of people, and and I had quite a few colleagues who helped me write this book with their expertise. Mm -hmm. We n never told our families what we did, and finally, after it was declassified, all these families then found out the important work that Brokenheimer did. 
unfortunately, because we're going chronologically, we have to end in a, a, our discussion of the hexagon at somewhat of a, a somber note. Uh, you had 20 total missions. 19 of them were immensely successful. Unfortunately, the last one was not. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about mission number 20? Yeah, that was a very, very sad day for me. Um, I had just left a meeting on April 18th, 1986, three months after the Challenger blew up and killed some astronauts. Uh, as I was walking out, the general manager saw me and he came over. He said, Phil, I have some bad news. The, vehicle, the 20th mission was due to be launched that day from Vandenberg, and he says it blew up 800 feet above the pad. I couldn't believe it. And I was so upset, I ran to my office and I actually cried. You know, I had been working on it for so long. And it was the last mission, and um, it was destroyed. And I know that a team of Perkinomer people who were stationed on the West Coast, we had a big West Coast field office there, and they were sent into the field the next day looking for material, namely film, because nobody wanted film to be exposed to the public, so they searched and searched, and they, they retrieved whatever they could. Uh, that was a very sad day. Um, there was one vehicle left, a working model. It was called the development model. And it was built at the same time with the real cameras. Everything was real and functioning, and it was used to simulate any problems mm -hmm. that might occur in space and to d develop a fix for it. And, and the problems might have been exhibited in uh, telemeter data. For example, we had a war room, mm -hmm. a large room, enclosed with mesh so it couldn't be tapped, and, uh, and maps of the world on it saying where the vehicle was located. We had d data on, uh, on the walls and secure phones, and it was used to debug. And so that one is, was remaining. It could have been upgraded to fly, but government decided not to do that. And so when the program was declassified at the um, Udvarhazi Museum here in Washington, it was on display in a tent. And all of us, we, I was invited, there were a lot of people invited to the declassification ceremony. It was a thrill to see it again. Mm. And we were hoping that it would remain in, in one of the Washington museums, but they didn't have room for whatever reason, so it was shipped to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Museum in Dayton, Ohio. And I was there recently, and I saw it. It was thrilling, and it's a beautiful exhibit, and maybe someday it'll come back to Washington. And you were the project manager of the, the, the optical bar itself, but the Hexagon itself was a collaborative effort taking not only your company, but even companies uh, from you know Lockheed you've talked about and Kodak and others. Right. Can you talk a little bit? Is that why you wrote this book? Well, is, I, I, yeah, I, I wrote this book really as a labor of love because I wanted to honor all the guys, and from Perkin Armour there were over a thousand people, honor their superb efforts. I mean, and nobody broke security. Everybody was very, very talented. I wanted to honor the people, and most of their names are in the book, by the way, and the company, Perkin Elmer Corporation, how well they, they did. And then there are a new name there, another company now, United Technologies. I believe they're still doing superb work. But I wanted to honor them. And um, 
and also uh, the companies that we worked with, such as Lockheed, it wasn't Lockheed Martin mm -hmm. then, it was Lockheed, the Kodak Corporation, and the company that made the reentry vehicles was McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis. And what's funny is since I, my book came out about a few months ago, I've gotten contacted by people at, at Kodak and at McDonnell Douglas thanking me. And the McDonnell Douglas fellow who was in charge of the reentry vehicles had questions for me. He was thrilled to find out you know, more about the system. And I also got a contact from a gentleman who worked at Vandenberg as a technician working on these rockets, the old Thor, the Agena, and eventually the Titan. And he said, I want to thank you. I got your book, and I finally found out after all these years what the payload was. <laughs> he didn't know what the payload was on, on, the, on the program. So I've been, had nice contact with, with the, these people. And, uh, but the book was really a labor of love. Well, Phil, I, I, we really appreciate you joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you. Uh, your book is fascinating. What you've talked to us about today is fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be yeah. here. And the book is Meeting the Challenge, the KH-9 Hexagon Reconnaissance Satellite by Phil Pressel. And this has been SpyCast. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And please, join us next time.